verse number 13. What a perfect song tonight for the text that we will be reading. And what a perfect song tonight to end the service with. Praise God. What a powerful name. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate the King of kings and Lord of lords who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man can, hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 11, John the Revelator, in the spirit on the Lord's day, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in, his, in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to speak just for a few moments tonight on this subject. Go ahead and crown him. Go ahead and crown him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would strengthen us in the house of God tonight. Give to you praise in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. There's something known as the tetragrammaton. That's quite a word. It's just a Greek word that means four letters. A tetragrammaton is Y-H-W-H. It's found in the Old Testament. It's four consonants, so there's no vowels associated with it. It's just four consonants. And they make up what was known as the divine name. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 15 talks about the sovereignty of the name of the Lord. It's used 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And so the written Hebrew language did not include the vowels. If you look at a Hebrew Bible, the only vowels that you will find are vowels that were inserted during the Middle Ages. So there were no vowels. So in order to make a pronunciation, you have to insert vowels. Only these consonants were used and the readers would supply the vowels to them. The reason for this is because there was a great, great reverence for the divine name that led to the practice of avoiding its use lest one should run afoul of verses like Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh 
his name in vain. And so because they wanted to be so respectful of the name and not take it in vain, they didn't use it. Which should say something to us that when we say in Jesus' name, it should be with reverence. And it should cause us some chagrin when people use it in vain. This is also a reason why we shouldn't use short versions of it. That kind of become a byword. If it's any, if it's closely connected to Jesus, don't say it unless it's in reverence. Because his name, his name is great and worthy to be praised and something we should respect. So they wouldn't speak it. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 7. In Leviticus chapter 24 and verse number 16, he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death and all the congregation shall certainly stone him. And so <laughs> there was a great pronouncement upon the usage of the name that it should be respected. And so it became almost too holy to pronounce it at all. And so a practice arose using the word Adonai or Lord. And so many translations of the Bible followed this practice of using Lord. In most English translations, the YHWH is recognizable where the word Lord appears in caps. You will notice it in the Old Testament and because it is used over 6,000 times, you can very clearly see that when it's in all caps, that is what it is referring to. In the course of centuries, the pronunciation of Y-H-W-H was completely lost, and in the Middle Ages, Jewish scholars developed a, a system of symbols that they would place underneath the words and beside the consonants to indicate the vowels. So it looks on its appearance very weird, but it's just the vowels in between the consonants are like our vowels, A-E-I-O-N-U, that we use in our pronunciation of words. It's just in the Hebrew language, because of the, the symbols or the vowels, they're placed underneath the words. And so for some, they would pronounce this as Jehovah, but it was really not actually a word at all until the vowels were inserted. Some and most Hebrew language scholars today believe that it was probably closely announced to what we would call Yahweh. So in the Old Testament, God's name would be described as Yahweh, the tetragrammaton that was so uh, important that people would not pronounce it. If you look in passages uh, like this one, I even I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. This is Yahweh speaking. There is no Savior. Beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, I have showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. I am God. There's no Savior beside me. So the Yahweh of the Old Testament, on his own lips, he is giving the admission that there is no Savior. How pronounced and impacting it is then when we turn to Luke chapter 2 and verse number 11. We read the words that state to us, unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the name of Yahweh and all the compound names, Jehovah Jireh and all these, Jehovah Shalom, the God who is our peace, the God who is our provider, all of these names 
whether mentioned or not mentioned. In the New Testament, they become encapsulated in a name in which is Christ the Lord. And Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The Yahweh of the Old Testament becomes Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And the totality of all of what his name is is captured in the character and the work of Jesus Christ. John said in John 1, 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he said, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The only way you're going to see a clarity of what Yahweh was in the Old Testament is if he becomes enfleshed and the word becomes flesh. And in that flesh, in the totality of what you are seeing, is one called Jesus. Jesus Christ. This is why Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. I'm thankful for the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm grateful for the name of Jesus. Through the development of the Old Testament names of Yahweh, all the compound names, the ultimate completion resides in the name that's above every name. This is why we baptize in Jesus' name. Praise God. Brother Steve Buxton just went to Africa with Brother Wade Bass. There was a bishop over there that got to studying. He joined up with a couple of brethren that went to Kenya, Brother Aston's church. He went to a conference. He went home. He started studying the scripture. He called individuals over here in the States, and he said, I, I have under my uh, leadership about 50 churches. We're having a conference. We want you to come, and we want you to teach about this baptism in Jesus' name and the totality of the name. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in Jesus' name. We want you to come over here and teach and preach. They went over there not knowing what to expect. They gathered together. They started preaching and teaching. The bishop was baptized in Jesus' name. Fifty-two other pastors were baptized in Jesus' name. <laughs> As God revealed to them the essentiality that the name of Jesus must be applied to your life hallelujah praise God I said well what kind of opposition did you receive was there any opposition said well the only opposition was somebody stood up and said I thought we baptized according to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 they said I am so glad you asked because that verse says you should baptize in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Ghost and the name is singular. It's not names of, it's name of. Because the name of the Father is Jesus. Because Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name. 
and the name of the Son is Jesus because Jesus was the Son. And Jesus said, when I go up, I'm sending my spirit to you, and it's going to be the Holy Ghost, which is in my name. Therefore, everything is in the name of Jesus. This is why Peter said, you've got to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sin. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. He's still texting, and he's talking about fact that we are on fire he said you're on fire we are on fire brother bass stayed an extra day now this is this is the interesting part of the story he stayed an extra day and he preached and there was a gentleman that came to the service that happened to have a church right across the wall and he heard the teaching and he came over and he said that sounds like truth and he came over and they let him stand up and I mean he lit into the new birth message and the Holy Ghost and everything he was he was right across the wall he heard them in that conference teaching and preaching he was a pastor of an apostolic organization that was 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 a wall away brother Nate these men had to come all the way from the United States of, of America to meet this bishop and 50 other pastors went right across the wall. There is an apostolic pastor right there. Now that's, that's very, very interesting, but I hope it cannot be said of us that we've got the truth of God and right across the wall or right across the desk or right across the aisle or right across the way, there is somebody that is searching for truth and can't find it and they've got to find somebody all the way across the world. Let somebody close by them testify and say, hey, I, I know what you're looking for. He is the king of kings, and therefore he deserves something to honor that distinction because he is the king of kings. Praise God, not Burger King, king of kings. You know, you go to Burger King, they give you this hat, you put it on, what do you feel like? I feel like a king. They know with the crown and so when they put the even though it's a flimsy crown makes you feel like a king he is the king of kings and the lord of lords and so there is a preeminence that is associated with his character and with his ability and so there is a way to honor him because of who he is and have a respect for who he is. Sometimes I walk into my house and I feel like the king. If only I had the crown, right? I am the king of this house. And all the subjects will obey my voice. And about that time, my wife says, you're tracking mud in here. Go outside and take your shoes off. See? Somebody said amen over there. Who was that? Was that you, Brother Ankehan? All right. We know who the real king is, right? Right, right. When you say a king and a crown, 
The crown acknowledges the royalty. You're not any different than what you were when you went into Burger King and put on the silly hat. You're just who you are, but somehow they've tapped into that marketing ploy that makes you feel really good. If Burger King's your thing, if that's your thing, but the crown is associating with the authenticity of who is wearing it. It's distinctive. It's a headdress. Often it is ornate. It's worn by kings and it's worn by other exalted persons. In the Old Testament, the high priest's crown was a gold plate inscribed holy to the Lord and it represented the priestly offices. David's gold crown was an emblem of his God-given kingship. Joash's actual coronation is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 11 and verse 12. David captured the gold stone inset crown of the king of Ammon. Ammonite statues in history show kings or gods wearing large high crowns. The great royal crown of Vashti, a Hazarus queen, was put on Esther's head because she disowned the ability and the respect that the crown associated with and it was placed on Esther's head. And besides being a mark of royalty, it also became something that was a metaphor for glory when you were crowned with this. And the scripture reveals to us here in the house of God tonight, you start looking through scripture, that it is possible for us to obtain a crown. Yes, us. I want you to poke your neighbor and tell them there's a crown waiting for you. There are five crowns that are mentioned that can be given to believers found in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. Know you not that they which run a race run all but one receiveth the prize? So run that you may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it for a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible Meaning that it is an incorruptible crown. This is a crown that can be given to a believers. It is an imperishable crown. It is given to somebody that is faithfully running the race. That has crucified every selfish desire in the flesh. And that is trying their best to point individuals to Jesus Christ. Their conduct in their life. It is like a race and they are faithful to it. They are mastering some things. They are temperate in all things. They purposely subject their own passions and their own will. They sacrifice some things for the sake of the kingdom of God because they recognize that God has placed a destiny and a purpose in their life. And God has called them and he's called them a particular direction that means I'm going to walk away from some old things and an old lifestyle. But I'm running in a race. I'm pursuing an incorruptible crown. Whatever God God has set out before me. I'm going to be the best that I can be. I'm willing to make whatever sacrifice I need to make to be successful, to complete the mission that God has set before me. Why? Because I know there is an incorruptible crown that God is going to give to me. And so I'm pursuing that. 
There's a crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming for you are our glory and joy. It is a crown of rejoicing. I'll tell you something. You want to know, you, you want to get plugged into, I don't understand why people worship and I don't, I don't get all that. I'll tell you. It's when you connect with somebody and you start working with them and you realize where they're coming from and, and you see the very bottom in which they're in and there seems to be no way out and there is no safety net and, and they've gone to the extremes to even try to look up from the bottom and then God starts doing things in their life and all of a sudden pieces of the puzzle start falling together and you realize I had a small but a significant part in where God is taking them when that happens it becomes a crown of rejoicing and when you look out and you see that person with their hands in the air praising God for the goodness of God and the blessings of God because God's working in their their life it's very difficult to stand back and not praise God and worship God because it becomes a crown of rejoicing to you praise God praise God if your kids are in the house of God and they're worshiping God and loving God how dare you sit on a church pew that's a crown of rejoicing because God's hands in their life It's easy to rejoice. It's a crown of rejoicing. And so that becomes a crown to those who are witnessing and talking about the goodness of God and reaching out and discipling others, telling people about God's grace and his mercy. And the greatest thing that you could ever do for somebody here on earth is to tell them about the good news that God is able to turn your life around. And he's got a better trajectory and a better path than the one you've been going down. That's not interesting in how many people you went to God. He's interested in how you've been doing the work of God because you plant, he gives the increase. But I'm telling you, there is nothing like looking out and seeing somebody that you know really shouldn't even be in this house. But because of God's grace and his mercy, they have been joined in with the saints of God. And God's leveled the field. There's no finances. It's not about family. It's not about anything. It's about a love for truth and a love for God. And when that happens, it becomes a crown of rejoicing. Paul said, what is our crown of rejoicing? It's you. It is you. We have seen what God has richly done in your life. We need to be thankful for everything that God has done in the lives of people that are even in this building tonight because it's a crown of rejoicing. Praise God. If you've had an important part, if you touch somebody and they're even here in this house of God tonight, you need to stand to your feet and say, I'll tell you what the crown of rejoicing is. It is those that are in the house of God tonight that God has saved and plucked from the hand of the enemy and delivered. James says in James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, 
for which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The crown of life. The crown of life. Jesus said, I'll give a crown to those who undergo severe hardship, testing, tribulation, even physical death. Some people are martyrs. They die for the name of the Lord. And some of those individuals that go through extreme tribulations and give the ultimate sacrifice, it is the greatest act of courage and love that you can show to God. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. You going through some difficult times? Hang on there. There's a crown of life coming. God's working. God's molding. That tribulation is forming and shaping you. It's giving you an opportunity to become more like him. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, the scripture says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. But faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's a crown of life. Amen. Who says that when you start living for God, everything just smooths out and there's no trials or no tribulations or no difficulties? That's not biblical, and that is not Bible. If that's your mentality, you need to go back to the book and recognize we're all going to face difficulties and struggles. There's going to be tribulations and times of distress, but God's going to provide to us a crown of life. He's going to be faithful to his word, and he's going to give to us the crown of life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse number 7. I fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Anybody looking and hasting for the appearing of the Lord? He could come right now, and I'd be ready. There are no attachments in this life that I want to hang on to. There's nothing that's going to be as great as what's going to transpire and takes place in the eternal perspective. This crown, a crown of righteousness, it's to those who look forward to the day when he returns. And they have, because of that, they are living a godly and a righteous life, a sanctified life, a set-apart life, because they recognize that they are pursuing a crown of righteousness. My righteousness is as filthy rags but because of what Jesus does in his own faithfulness, he has given to me a status. He has named and proclaimed over me a status of being righteous. I'll tell you right now, I don't feel righteous, but I'm thankful that God says you're righteous. Now, because of your graciousness and thankfulness, live a holy, separated life. Don't live like everybody else in the world. Why? Because there's a crown of righteousness that is coming to you, and it's going to be provided to you. And so while I'm living here on earth, I am going to live a godly life. I don't want to live a carnal life. I want to live a godly life. I want to live a, not an unrighteous life. I want to live a life of righteousness. I don't want to succumb to the influences of the world that promotes and markets unrighteousness. But God, help me have an attitude and a heart to serve you in sanctification. And lastly, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ 
and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint. You can't force somebody to live for God, but willingly, not for a filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. There is a pastor's crown. There is a ministry crown. This could probably include a lot of people that are disseminating the gospel, whether it is preachers, teachers, Sunday school teachers, missionaries, those who teach the word of God in their respective ministries, though individually and singly, this word is talking about shepherds having the oversight. There is a crown that is associated with that. We need a ministry that is pursuing what? Pursuing a crown of glory. Everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we involve ourselves in should be desirous of a crown of glory. What? That the people of God be strengthened. What? That the church be encouraged. That there is a move of God and revival breaks out for it is a crown of glory. Because if you preach the word and all these things come together, then there is a mighty move of God's spirit and anointing. And there's an inspiration to move the gospel forward in wherever we are in this city and in this world. There's a crown of glory. And so there are five crowns that we can receive as a saint of God and as a believer. But here's, what, here's what's very, very fascinating about it. When we're talking about eternal things, we're talking about getting to a place of seeing him as he is. Oh, I'm thankful for the earnest of my inheritance. It's just the earnest, which means it's just a small interest that God provides to us here on earth. The earnest is the Holy Ghost. What we feel in the house of God and the anointing of God is the earnest of our inheritance. When God moves in a powerful way, thank God for the earnest of my inheritance. But when we get there and receive the full inheritance, it's going to be greater than the best service you've ever been in. It's going to be more sublime than the best revival you've ever been in because when we see him as he is and we start worshiping him and magnifying him, there's going to be a totality of his power and anointing and ability that's going to make this life on earth pale in comparison. Thank God for what we feel, but we know it's going to be greater. You say, well, what makes you say that? Because in Revelation Chapter 4 and verse number 10, the Bible says, as the musicians come tonight, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And what do they do? Here's the action of the 24 elders. What do they do? They cast their crowns before the throne. <laughs> they, Whatever God has given... They take it off and they throw it at his feet saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Everything that I crown myself with is going to pale in significance of what he did at Calvary and the price that he paid to redeem me from sin. Go ahead and crown him. Crown him how? I'm going to crown him with praise. I'm going to crown him 
with worship and adoration and say, Lord, you are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords and you're worthy of everything that I could bring to you. Could somebody in this place just go ahead and crown him tonight? Praise God as we stand to our feet in the house of God tonight. Those elders placed their crowns at Jesus' feet. And if they do, would not all of us want to do the same? We will crown him with praise. Go ahead and crown him. Crown him with praise. John chapter 19 and verse number 16, a very interesting place of scripture that talks about the crowning of Jesus is found in chapter 19. He bearing his cross went forth unto a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the, let me say that again. The writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The Jews got so upset they came to, to Pilate and they said, wait a minute, don't, don't write that. Write that he said he was the king of the Jews. We're not saying it. You, 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 you made a mistake. I mean, isn't it kind of ironic that the guy that didn't know what to do with Jesus, he got that right when he labeled who it was that was on the cross. It was the king of the Jews. And not only of the Jews, ladies and gentlemen, he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. He's the king over all. Pilate answered. I mean, Pilate had no guts. The entire, I don't know what to do. And there's nothing wrong with him. He comes back in several meetings. He has no clue what he's doing. Finally, he washes his hands. He has no guts, but on this matter, he had some guts. And he said to them, what I have written, I have written. Pilate, you have just declared who he really, really was. And he is, where's he crowned? He is crowned at the cross the most unusual place of anybody that's a dignitary that should deserve respect and honor. If a dignitary walked in this place tonight, if a dignitary, a real dignitary, they're hard to come by down here. Don't Are there any dignitaries that would walk in this place that would cause us to stand up and climb? Maybe because the office that they serve, we, we would do it. But if a dignitary walked in, we would stand to our feet and give honor to them because of the office. And here Jesus is and we know he's Yahweh, and we know everything in the Old Testament and the characters associated with and we know that Jesus, who he is in the New Testament, and here he is at the cross, and he's being crowned at the cross, a most inhumane place that by, by humanity's understanding, this would not be the place that you would crown a king. He's crowned at the cross because he's paying a price of redemption that is greater than anything that any dignitary has ever, ever, ever done. 
This is why he's deserving of praise and worship because in the process of what cross means and what this altar means, we can even stand here in this place and even get our hands up in the air. Otherwise, we would not have opportunity because sin would destroy and kill and separate us from God. But because he took every transgression and iniquity and he took it to the cross and nailed it to that old rugged tree and they crowned him, he is crowned in authority that gives us the ability to say, there is great, great power in the name. Nothing else could wash away my sins. Oh, but the blood that was able to cleanse and renew and wash and give me opportunity. Hallelujah. Go ahead and crown him, will you, in this place tonight. Go ahead and crown him with praise. God, you're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. Hallelujah. Let's do that together all over this building here. Lord, I thank you and praise you and worship you. I magnify you and exalt you. I thank you for every victory that you have won, every battle that you have won in my life, everything that you have turned around. I thank you for every miracle. I thank you for Calvary's cross. I thank you for being crowned there. Peradventure for a good man, some would. But you're greater than just a good man. You're a savior. You're a redeemer. You're a God manifested in the flesh. Hallelujah. I feel the Holy Ghost in this place tonight. We need to go ahead and crown him with praise. We need to go ahead and crown him with praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> How thankful are you? That you were baptized in the name that's above every name. That he washed you of every sin. He remitted every sin. How thankful are you that he redeemed you from the hand of the enemy and hell and the grave and gave to us an eternal promise. Go ahead and crown him, why don't you? Go ahead and crown him king. You are the king of kings. My, my, you're the Lord of lords. I want you to know something. Every time you take a step toward an altar and every time you take a step toward the cross, you're crowning him with praise because you're recognizing that event and where he is crowned is the greatest thing that has ever, ever happened in the annals of all of history. Every step I take toward the cross is crowning him with praise. Every step I take toward an altar is saying, I know your blood is powerful. God, why don't we take a step out tonight and walk to a place and crown him with praise. Crown him with praise.